You'll never guess, everyone. It's competition time! We need to retire that jingle immediately. I mean, was it ever a jingle so much as two words said enthusiastically? Competition time. As uh, loyal listeners will know, we've been running a competition over the last few podcasts um, to uh, award a devoted listener with a copy of Horror Studies and... Animation, production, process and practice. Two wonderful journals uh, donated by Intellect. Uh, thank you to Intellect for providing the competition prizes. Um, all you had to do to enter, if those can remember, was submit a blog post or podcast idea to the Fantasy Animation website at fantasy-animation.org or alternatively you could uh, leave us a review on iTunes. And a few people did both. Uh, we've got a reasonably brimming hat here to pick from. Uh, Chris, why don't you delve into it and select our lucky winner? Thank you, Alex. Yes, we had uh, a lot of uh, entries to the point where we had to buy a new proverbial fantasy animation hat to delve into. Um, and we're delighted to announce that the uh, winner of the uh, Intellect Journals Horror Studies and Animation Practice Process and Production Art is Isabel Guy, um, who gave us the idea to do um, a blog post or a, or a podcast on She-Ra and the Princess of Power. So that is a, a kind of web animated Netflix series, I believe. Uh-huh. Uh, and I believe it's a sort of re a feminist retelling of the sort of She-Ra story. Not that I consider myself to be an expert on She-Ra, but um, I've heard it's rather good, actually, from a colleague at work. So um, Yeah, uh, and it's also, um, it's also from the DreamWorks Animation Studio. So a studio that's largely known for its animated feature films. It's kind of one of its first forays or, or a successful foray into television. So we're really pleased that Isabel's recommended that um, so I'll tell you what, we'll post uh, the winner uh, on our Twitter and Facebook account. If we get, how many likes do we need to get? Ooh, thanks for asking me this question for, on for, air without... For, for us to actually do this as a podcast entry. Um, it's all right, well, Chris is now going to think in real time, but yeah. however long it actually takes him, it'll take him about a second in this introduction. Yeah, um, so I would say, I mean, I don't know what the question is. What's the question? How many, how many likes do we feel is worthy of us dedicating... An hour or so of our lives to She-Ra. Oh, that's a good question. That's a great question, Alex. Thanks. Um, thank you for that. Um, I would say anywhere, 30. 30, 30 likes. likes. 30 likes. The gauntlet yeah. is thrown down. Uh, 30 likes on Twitter or 30 likes on Facebook and we will do an episode on She-Ra. Um, so there we are. <laughs> what, what better prize for everyone? But the prize there goes to Isabel Guy. Uh, Isabel, all you need to do is get in contact to us either via Twitter or via Facebook or alternatively, as I say, you can go on the um, How to Contribute uh, section or indeed the, con uh, the Contact Us yes. section of the website and send us an email there and we'll, we'll, we'll get your details and sort you out with a copy of Horror Studies and... AP3. Uh, courtesy of Intellect. Thanks to Intellect for this competition. We might run a few again in the future, um, depending on if uh, things all work out. But um, it was really nice of them to be involved in this podcast. If we run it again, mm -hmm. are you going to say competition time? I think it would be a bit churlish if I did that. Competition time! I had to do it one more time. Hello everyone and welcome to the latest episode of Fantasy Animation Podcast with me Chris Holiday and me Alex Sargent. Today we are on the farm, we're down on the farm, specifically Animal Farm as we look at uh, an adaptation, a 1954 adaptation uh, of George Orwell's um, Fable directed uh, by Halas and Batchelor, so two figures who are particularly renowned within the history of British animation. And I'm delighted that we are joined by Jez Stewart, who is the curator of animation at the BFI National Archive. Jez, thank you for joining us. A uh, pleasure to be here, and it's uh, nice to see your commitment to the podcast that we're all in these pig costumes, and uh, <laughs> we all look delightful. So yes, we are sort of engaging with a film that was familiar to me insofar as I'd, I'd heard of it, and I was uh, familiar certainly with Halas and, and Bachelor as, as uh, filmmakers and as sort of this British animation studio, but I only saw it relatively recently, so I'm still sort of digesting it and still sort of thinking about its relationship. Actually, for me, its relationship to fantasy, I was looking at it thinking, okay, I've got lots, lots to say about animation, but actually I was sort of 
thinking about what you might say. And then obviously, uh, Jez, given your sort of experience and, and, and c- kind of coming to the film, I think from a different perspective, obviously yeah. I'd be looking at it from animation, we, uh, we, Alex, we, fantasy. We, we like to start this by sort of declaring our own um, mm. prejudices. And, and Chris always often explains what he's sort of been looking at in terms of animation. And I often talk about fantasy. So as our, as our guest, perhaps you should like to do it on this, Jez. And, and sort of what does this film mean to you as a, as a, as a curator, as an archivist? How, what's special about Animal Farm and, and what's important to think about as we're watching it? Well, I suppose on, on that first point, uh, it's a personal thing for me in that um, since 2010, we brought in the Hallison Bachelor collection, uh, which uh, was a lot of film material, also a lot of uh, what we term as special collections, scripts, documents, ephemera, posters, artwork, and there was an awful lot of it related to, to Animal Farm. And it's a, I mean, the history of Hallison Bachelor as very central in um kind of late 20th century British animation, the sort of dominating the second half of it, really, from the start in 1940. And then Animal Farm, as somebody sort of looking into British animation history, Animal Farm is this great pinch point in the middle in that you have, for example, a cameraman working on the film called Sid Griffiths, who worked back in uh, silent cinema in the 1920s with Jerry the Troublesome Tyke. And you have animators sort of trained and started on this film or involved in this film working all the way through into the 1980s and 90s so it's this real little nice little pinch point in the middle that you can branch to to a whole range of different uh, uh, British animation stories. Wow that's loads to think about and and for listeners who perhaps are coming at this um, afresh um, Hallison Bachelor they're a studio I've sort of vaguely heard of but um, you know with my fancy hat on I don't know a lot about it Perhaps I'm sure Chris can say some more in a minute about it, but, but who, are, who are they and why do they matter in terms of the sort of history of British animation? Um, so they were, uh, John Hallis was Hungarian. Uh, he made his start in, in his native Hungary and he got some training with George Powell. He went off to Hollywood later, but mm-hmm. he was brought across to uh, a British studio in the 1930s. Um, and one of, uh, he sort of put out a hire for, for animators um, for starting this new company. And one of the people who replied was, uh, Joy Batchelor, who was Watford-born, um, she worked in one other company, and they kind of came together and they they hit it off personally and professionally, um, and so they had a kind of little um, sojourn to, to Hungary where they tried to make a film back there, and they came back to Britain, and eventually they managed to start their own studio. At first, under the wing of an advertising agency called Jay Walter Thompson, they were making cinema adverts, um, but because they were in the right place at the right time in the right context, they uh, took on a lot of Ministry of Information stuff, and so they built up through the, the Second World War this reputation as a kind of government spokesbody. And that, in a way, sort of by an indirect route, got them the job um, on Animal Farm, and that's something we can go into a little bit more, if you like, uh, in the sense that um, they'd made, um, in the post-war period, because they had this relationship with the, the government, they made something called the Charlie series, and they'd made a film um, about the Marshall Plan, uh, and that, that, and another film that they were commissioned to do by sort of the Marshall Plan executives called Shoemaker and the Hatter brought them to the connection of, of Louis de Rochemont, who was the man who kind of got the backing to, to, to commission Animal Farm as a feature. And it, and it was a commission. It wasn't an independent project, and that's something um, that is of interest in itself. It's mysterious investors... Um, which is what the film is most notorious for now. Well, I think actually that kind of so yeah that that exactly that sort of political dimension or political commitment to the film that as you said comes out of Halas and Bachelor's sort of relationship with the Ministry of Information and and uh, propaganda ostensibly is also something that connects up and, and we were talking sort of informally before the episode about uh, fantasy and allegory and the sort of politicization of fantasy and how fantasy is fantasy fundamentally or necessarily allegorical um, and so that's a really interesting that from a historical perspective the film emerges out of a set of contexts that speak to a kind of um, uh, historical weight or is it a political impulse political agenda that at the same time goes right the way through to how we might even understand the idea of, of allegory as working ideologically within something like fantasy. And I know you're obviously, this is, this is your bag, as it were. <laughs> proverbial bag. They, they, he's gesturing at, uh, at me, listeners. Um, yeah, I, I, I think this is a really interesting movie. I think it's, it's important to place it in the context of the 50s and sort of post, uh, post-war, post-Second World War and Cold War uh, paranoia, hysteria, concerns over Soviet cultural and 
political invasion. Um, but I think for me more broadly, it also just talks about the place of you know this this novel and this adaptation. Um, fantasy and allegory there's loads written on it and I'm not going to go over the reading list now but I'll drop in names where I can that sort of that there's this there's a thorny debate within fantasy studies between is fantasy allegory is allegory something that's different to fantasy one of the key theorists for this is, is a woman named uh, Lynette uh, Hunter who argues that fantasy and allegory are ultimately uh, different because fantasy tries to convince us of its faux reality whilst allegory is about sort of showing us that the there is a faux reality so that we read it figuratively rather than literally. And we can talk about sort of the way the animation is being used here. Because I think yes. there's a really interesting dynamic here between the original source text, which is almost the quintessential satirical allegorical novel, and this animation, which is playing with that allegory and trying to actualise it on screen through various um, devices and things like that. Um, I mean, so I've, I've come to the film... It's a film, as I said at the start, that I've, that I've heard of, and I was under the, as it turns out, misapprehension. Or, or maybe I was under the apprehension, and then I read a bit more and found out that that wasn't the case, that it was the first um, British feature-length. But then I found out that it wasn't, but you were telling... But I, so I, I'm reliably informed that it, in fact, was still the first, because I'd done a bit of research around the film um, to see Halas and Bachelor's relationship to kind of British animation and their film handling ships um, from 1945. Uh, and, but I, but I, I know that this film obviously exists as a landmark, Animal Farm as a landmark within British animation. Um, so is it right that this is the first feature length? Because it's about 70 minutes, 75 minutes, something like this. Um, yeah, I mean, they're, they're kind of two different things, I suppose, in terms of there's feature and there's feature length. Mm. Uh, they're not necessarily <laughs> the same thing. I mean, no, feature sure. length, at least it's the same length as a feature film. For me, I always add this dimension is kind of, is this a feature attraction in terms of a theatrical Thing. And there's these there's two films which often get put forward um, uh, as kind of predecessors, um, Handling Ships as one yeah. and Water for Firefighting being the other. Um, both of those films were intended to be used and entirely non-theatrical. They're training films and they actually each break down into six or seven parts. So they're actually okay. series rather than uh, things. The same, sometimes you hear a Story of the Flag, um, which is an Anson Dyer 1927, 1928 film, get put forward as a feature uh, animated feature well again it was done as, as a series and actually there's a lot of it doesn't survive it's lost um, and it, uh, from my reading it had a lot of live action in it as well so I dismiss that one and for me so Animal Farm is the first and it's that thing I suppose going back to the fact that it's a film that wasn't created by the market there wasn't a commercial demand uh, for this film um, and it was created by um, a commission um, basically in terms of the the newly engendered kind of CIA and the American government wanting to use Orwell um, as part of the cultural Cold War and them using somebody they've used before in terms of Louis de Rochemont, who has a background through much of time, but he'd also worked um, with a film um, sort of publicising the FBI's work and sort of it was a safe government hand and looking for some way of making an animated version of Animal Farm because you couldn't do it with live action, doesn't work on the radio. Um, <laughs> so actually the cartoon's the only way to do it and, and who could they find to make it? And it ended up being House and Bachelor for, for a variety of reasons. Some people say because it being uh, done in Britain made it give it a little bit more kind of um, integrity in operation rather than it being American. Some people say it was cheaper. Um, but basically they seemed to be in the right place at the right time to do it. And... Um, also, it's a product that they probably would have wanted to take on themselves anyway if they could have found the funding independently to do it. Um, Joy Batchelor in particular, I think, was, was extremely interested in that and a fan of, of, of Orwell and the works. And they both were kind of committed sort of democratic socialists themselves. They were left-wing in their views, even if their backers weren't. <laughs> That's really interesting. Yeah. I, well, when we get to the specifics of the movie, I, I want to talk about that because I think the way they sort of truncate some of the narrative components, I found really interesting in terms of how left-wing, um, how left-wing apologist, how how left-wing antagonistic this movie is. And, and maybe we'll get there when we start talking about Snowball and Napoleon and the classic and the classic names like that. I guess before we just one more question before we start, Hallison and Bachelor, what what what? Are we getting this information from, from the archive that you've collected here? Um, and I'd love to know if you could just, for our listeners, sort of what has this archive shown us about their place in animation history or the way they, 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 they developed their working method that helped them be such important 
figures to the history of British animation? And what are we still to learn about these things? Where, where is this archive? What does it look like? Um, so Give us the goss, Jen. Uh, <laughs> very fortunately, before... It will just be between us. No one will hear this. <laughs> well, you, uh, Vivian Hallis, who's the daughter of, of John and Joy, uh, kind of was given the, uh, the, the burden of her parents' legacy... Um, uh, when her parents began to get ill in the 1990s. Joy died in 91 uh, and John in 95, I think. Um, and basically, Vivian has done so much in the last two and a, two and a half decades to to push her, her parents' legacy. So there were books that were done. Uh, there was a book called Art and Art and Animation, which actually has quite a deep dive into the making of Animal Farm, which came out in the 60s, probably. Um, and but she um, with Paul Wells put together Harrison mm. Bachelor an illustrated history a book which you can still find it has a DVD at the back and it has quite it uses some of that earlier book and has quite a detailed section on uh, Animal Farm and she's continued um, a few years ago we put out a book um, well, she put out a book I wrote something for it about her her, her mother for her mother's centenary Joy Bachelor um, uh, a moving image which is a really nice little book. Mm. And parts of these have used the archive um, uh, in, in different ways, actually sort of having kind of a sort of... Because she had deep control, she could use... They're, they're illustrated by things like tension charts from, from Animal Farm, which is something that often gets reproduced because it's a great way into sort of adaptation uh, and the way that the in Animal Farm in particular was approached. But they were such a big company that worked through children's television, advertising, sponsored... And, a whole string of independent art films and from from their origins in 1940 until the company sort of finally last production in 94 I mean they were they were the biggest uh, animation company in Britain for many years and John Canemaker sort of christened them the king and queen of, of British animation which is probably the, the nicest way mm -hmm. of, of doing it and yeah. the BFI have access, yeah. have, have this whole archive now? They've, it's been donated to them? Or? So, uh, yeah, if you search on uh, the BFI collection search, you can, um, all the uh, the paper collections of Harrison Batch collection has been actually catalogued in great detail, and wow. you can really sort of go through and, um, and uh, as many academic audience and they may be familiar with the sort of the, the access procedures for that, but in theory, anything is kind of bookable through uh, wow. um, to get research access through uh, the BFI Rubin Library. But uh, my colleague Caroline Bevan, uh, credit to her, went through all of the Hallison Bachelor sort of scripts, documents, and ephemera. So you have everything from sort of correspondence to, the, to about the making film, different versions of the scripts. It's 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 there and, and it's available for for researchers to access. So um, do have a look at that. Exciting stuff. I think that, that wets my whistle in terms of Animal Farm. Chris, what about you? It's uh, one, it certainly does. I'm, I'm, it's interesting because, you know, you hear a lot about or you, you read the name Animal Farm and these books of, of animation and they're sort of described as a landmark. But to get into, to kind of go into the archive yeah, figuratively yeah. And, and sort of uh, actually, if you like, to look at the stuff that was produced in and around the film, to look at its background and its context and the, the sort of... And, and also when I'm watching it today and thinking about its relationship to the world we live in today and, and the sort of timelessness in, in that sense and um, the reasons why it's considered a landmark are perhaps it's reason, the reasons why it's so it retains that kind of purchase yeah. today um, but yeah amazing should we let's get let's get cracking on the on the actual film because yeah. uh, we've danced around it enough now I think we've uh, it's like a bond pre-title sequence that um, now now it's time for the main event um, so uh, we begin uh, with this uh, quite authoritative voiceover, which I yes. guess is supposed to stand in for sort of the narrator in, in the book, which is also quite authoritative, explaining the situation. Um, I guess we'll go over the plot very briefly for those who've got no um, uh, prior knowledge of Animal Farm, but it's a pretty well-worn story. Um, there is um, a farm uh, run by Mr. Jones. It is... Uh, what was the word? Antiquated, clapped out, run yep. really badly. I think the phrase they use is once great but no longer uh, farm, where the animals are heavily exploited. The farmer doesn't really care anymore. He's drunk all the time. Um, he's not looking after his farms enough. Um, and here sows the seeds of revolution amongst the, uh, amongst the animals, particularly amongst one particular uh, spokesperson, our old major, who is the sort of spokesperson for the animal's descent and this sort of wise elderly figure and that's sort of where the film starts um, absolutely so i um, the first notes i've got are around adaptation you know based on george orwell's then it describes as a memorable fable mm -hmm. um then my next note is about kind of painterly textures like very much you know cell animation 
but what, what struck me was actually its use of sound and it got me thinking about how animation uses sound more generally and actually how a lot of the relationships that you describe between the animals, um, you have the voiceover obviously that describes the world, I think what the line is, the world that we know. This is the world that we know, um, introduces the, the setting of Manor Farm uh, and then ultimately when we're hearing all these, these stories of how the farm is dilapidated and kind of going into disrepair, that seems to be articulated through a series of looks and a relay of looks and 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 um, kind of the gaze between different animals, and you have all these animals look, and and this really sets the scene for the whole film. The way that the film uses sound, and how animation is obviously silent. You know, the cells make no noise, but the way in which sound is used, you hear some kind of true quote unquote animal act, uh, sounds and 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 stuff that connotes their reality as animals. But actually, a lot of it is done through this this soundtrack that takes the place of dialogue at some at some moment. So I thought there was a lot in the opening opening sequence that sets out the terms of the how we're understanding the space, how we're understanding the rules of the world, how we're understanding the animals, yeah. what the animals can do and can't do. So yeah, I thought it was kind of really interesting first five minutes or so that set everything up. It's interesting about anthropomorphism. Yes. The rules of the anthropomorphism get established. Earlier. I don't know if, if you can speak to this at all, Jez. If not, I, by the way, there's, there's a tradition on this podcast where I ask Chris impossible questions that he can't answer. So if I ask you one of them at any point, uh, feel free Pass to pass it to me. And, and I'll put a jingle in uh, where, yeah. where that happens. We'll, um, we'll, uh, we'll cut that. Um, but but uh, for me, because I don't know enough about the history of British animation prior to this um, thing, it made me think about. Uh, anthropomorphism in Disney films yep. in that this is mid-50s so this is round about the time of say Lady and the Tramp which is a, a piece I'm doing a bit of work on at the moment and, I, and Lady and the Tramp's quite um, innovative in how it deals with anthropomorphism um, the idea the stable of the talking cat who looks like a cat that behaves like a cat but otherwise talks when humans aren't around is actually established in around this period in Disney movies and I was interested in how it it's quite similar here. We have similar rules established whereby the animals only talk like animals when humans aren't around largely, otherwise they make animal noises and things like that. Is there a, you know, are there other animals in British car, British cartoons, shorts or whatever that this is riffing on or is this a Hallison Bachelor sort of um, innovation here? Uh, well, I suppose there's a few things here in terms of, one thing in terms of the, the history of the production is that, um, the, a lot of the animators who worked on Animal Farm came from um, something called Gallant British Animation, which is a studio set up um, sort of 4045 uh, by uh, J. Arthur Rank. He wanted to take on Disney's own game and he sort of funded uh, an animation studio uh, based at um, Moorhall in Cookham uh, near Maidenhead. And he brought across David Hand, supervising director mm -hmm. of Snow White, to basically sort of run the studio, although actually uh, Hand may have possibly even been around and actually sort of a part of conjuring that idea um, and he gave uh, rank basically backed hands three years to train up animators pretty much from scratch um, in a Disney method um, and about 20 or so different animators got real training um, from um, characters like John Reed who is you know the animation director on Animal Farm so he was another Disney he was American yeah. he'd worked on Fantasia and other things um, and he came across and so this generation of animators got trained at uh, Government British Government British folded in about 1950 um, and a lot of those animators who had that training were the main the, there's five named lead animators on the film and four of them came from through that training. So the idea of how they work with animals and how the animals move, a lot of that would have come from that Disney school because that's the way that mm. the animators would have been worked through. The other thing I suppose there is in terms of they did sort of, um, they did split up some of the characters on the basis of uh, the abilities of the animators. So. Uh, from memory, uh, I believe Arthur Hemberston did a lot to do with the horses, because he was really interested in horses, and the kind of <laughs> actually right. sort of, uh, and uh, Edric Radage was the, the pig man, uh, because he was good with pigs and things like that. So they actually, they sort of specialised and really, really spent a lot of time visiting farms and watching animals and associating how they moved. And they were looking for a bridge of, I think, that sort of realism where they could and the feel of the farm and the animals, but also making it work. But they had this training that probably sort of creeps in in terms of the way they move and the, the anthropomorphic sort of a Disney style of things. Yeah, so, that's great. But I, I think what, and I, it did feel very Disney. Yeah, yeah. But I think the key distinction between this and a Disney uh, version of this story or a Disney 
film with animals in that is being made at the time is this atmosphere of melancholia and sort of pastoral nostalgia and I think that speaks from my head to British fantasy storytelling traditions because we we love animals in British fantasy stories uh, right back to say you know uh, Watership Down the, uh, which is a sort of film that's getting its anniversary this year um, we have a long history of using animals but very often we use them to speak to a sort of rural past Often it's very melancholic, very bittersweet the way we use them. And right from the start of this story, we get a story about a farm that was once great, that is now not. And this sense of the decay through a presentation of the pastoral, I think, is, 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 is quite acute in the film. And you don't get that in Disney. What you get in Disney often is anthropomorphism used for for amusement and, and comedic effect and all this kind of stuff. And I look at Chris, he's got a quizzical face. Yeah, I'm just thinking of, kind of this idea of a kind of undoing of Disney. So I've not thought of it in these terms where visually the animals look like they could be from a, a sort of in Disney's wheelhouse. But at the same time, the fact that they don't really talk and everything is done through, in some cases, true animal sounds and, and looking and, and some of the designs are sort of quite grotesque, but it feels... Interestingly, I've not thought of it in those terms, but an undoing of of Disney of the way of using animals in film, and particularly cell animated animals in film. It seems like an undoing of of uh, you know the fact that the farm owner is this sort of drunk, and we see him sort of move around, and he goes off to the Red Lion pub. Every I feel like every village town has a Red Lion. <laughs> He's off to the White Horse later. Um, but the way it sort of treats quite. In that case, quite adult themes. This is the interesting thing of using animals to sort of engage with adult themes or adult content or kind of political ideas, whether these animals dilute, accentuate, how, why are they so good and popular as, as surrogate characters. So, yeah, I, I, I like the idea that the anthropomorphism, anthropomorphism or anthropomorphic register in the film works like a conscious... Uh, undoing or, or, or reappropriating yeah. how we could use animals within an animated context they don't have to burst into song in fact there is a kind of work song in the film yeah. that shows them working in harmony but it's not it's not set to music in that way it, it's really about the labour of their work and it's deeply mournful yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah just one other thing in terms of they did apparently I mean I, I'm sitting on the desk in front of me is the book uh, All Well Subverted by uh, Daniel J. Lee, which is a really sort of deep dive into the the CIA and their role in the filming of, of Animal Farm uh, as well worth looking at. Um, he's quite good at detailing different processes of, of uh, the production of the film, and they did try different things with the animals, whether they tried to, just doing grunts and even using subtitles was something that they considered for a while. Right. And the role of the, the voiceover was something that actually came later in later versions of the scripts. There were quite a few variations actually working out how they could do this. And it didn't initially, for my understanding, have that kind of voiceover. So they tried different ways of doing it, and then famously in the end, they just used one actor to do yeah. all the animals. Yeah. Uh, and that's something that they were kind of testing it out. So it is a, a new, it was a different kind of film to make, and they had to find a way to do it. Um, so they, they were sort of figuring it out as they went along. Do we, do we know why they ended up, or could we speculate why they ended up fit, um, settling on this, let's just have the one voiceover, let's sort of blend it, rather than the subtitle option, which would be really interesting, but very different, you know, in its effect? Or... Uh, I mean, I don't think this film was ever seen that it would be a, a, a box office blockbuster, but I think the subtitles would have sure. killed that in. And in terms of why they just use one person, I think it's because um, uh, Morris Denham just could do it really well. Yeah, yeah. It was just easier working with one person. I and mean, he was famous for as a... He'd been in a few film roles, but he was better known as a radio actor. And he was known for doing lots of voices. And it had a kind of gimmick. And it, I think everything that they wanted, they could get out of this one guy. Why not use that? So that all might see and agree. The laws of Animal Farm were inscribed in a prominent place to be remembered and obeyed forever. No animal shall sleep in a bed. No animal shall drink alcohol. Four legs good, two legs bad. <laughs> Wings, Countess Legs. It also made me think of sort of this idea of the war correspondent and the idea that the, the, the film is somehow doing some sort of public service that there's, I'm thinking of all the sorts of 30s, 40s documentary move, movement movies where there's a, uh, 
in some cases a, a quite unquote foreign non-British voice that is reporting about events that were happening in the war, Second World War. Uh, and so that idea of reportage and, and I don't know, that, that gave it obviously a weight of authority. Um, and you're right, his voice is incredible. I think it's uh, his ability to do all of the, largely all of the, all of the animals. All of the animals? Uh, yeah, he did them all. Wow. Uh, the only other voice is, is, uh, is Gordon Heath, um, who uh, was um, an unusual choice in, in himself. He's an, an American. He doesn't sound very American when you listen to it. But he was a, a, a black gay actor and performer who lived, um, run a, a bar in the left bank of, of Paris with his partner, um, had wow. broken through on stage and, and come to uh, the UK, London, and then settled in, in, in Paris. And um, he's a really interesting character himself, you read about him. Uh, but his voice really is quite special as well in terms of that film. And he and even, I don't think that there's this. To things in terms of the the investors to the film and, and I don't think they really knew who, who he was or his background but they all even there wow his, his voice is perfect he kind of really comes out and he does have this really mm. powerful impressive voice. The sound I think is one of the best parts of the the movie I think that the, the it doesn't rely on a cacophony of you know it's not a musical it's not something where the sound is everything is done through dialogue. It's done through the images. The images are sort of quite simply left to really tell the story. So that limited or limiting soundscape um, that is that is we have these animal sounds, but we also have this really strong instrumental score that peaks and troughs as the characters look at each other as they recall in horror as they um, get to work. It almost functions. You know, animation is, as I said, silent. It functions more like a. Whereas the film is largely silent. And func- function for me a lot like a silent movie I thought it was and in that sense the images there's a lot of weight that's put on the images I guess to be able to tell the story economically you know it is only 70 minutes and they a lot seems to happen and the voiceover plus incidental music and a few a few bits of speech but largely not speech I think is is great the sound for me was the thing that I picked up on the the most the use of sort of non-diegetic um, music to position the audience in terms of emotion and to, to kind of play with the the way that the animal situation is sort of unfolds and goes up and down and they they have this kind of prosperous community and then it slowly but surely unravels. To me, the sound uh, reminded me of... Uh, there's a lot of avant-garde sort of radio plays uh, coming out in the mid-50s. Uh, Samuel, Be- uh, Samuel Beckett's... Uh, Samuel, Samuel L. Beckett is a mixture of Samuel, Samuel Beckett L. and Samuel L. Jackson, which is something I want to exist in the world, but unfortunately was just a if gap only. on my part. Yeah. Uh, Samuel Beckett plays, where there are, there's a, was one particular play called All That Four, where the whole um, sound is done through voice acting, uh, so there are no uh, diegetic sounds recorded in the world, and there's a, uh, it opens on a farm. And there's lots of sort of clucking made by human noises and trotting made by human noises, and and to me it sort of echoed that. It's very sort of experimental and very sort of atmospheric mm. in its use of sound, but it's all coming from the human voice. A lot of it. It also did make me think of it as being a story told to us, and the animation illustrating that story. Like so a picture book. Kind of so thing. it linked back to some things we were talking about when we did Snow White. Sort of that that that's kind of like the angle Disney were going for. Um, that actually this feels like a story that's being illustrated through animation rather than a story necessarily told through animation. I don't mean that in a pejorative sense, but it does have that relationship mm. to the sound. Because the sound's quite didactic and quite authoritative, um, the, the images embellish and, and add to, and I think that, that we could talk about that as we go on, like how, what bits it chooses to embellish from the original source and which bits it truncates mm. or, or simplifies by showing us in an image what is otherwise told through prose. Or in some cases not showing us. You know, there's certain scenes where sure. you, you, you don't see the thing that's happening on screen. What you, what you see is the animal's reaction to the thing that's happening on screen and that gives it, that gives it a little bit extra, extra punch. My, my next note is about the kind of, I suppose the next bit in the story, the, the first act of rebellion or the idea that the animals are they're, not, they're dissatisfied with their yeah. situation. So, so Old Major inspires this rebellion where animals can be treated equally. Uh, obviously, in the original source text, it's often been very linked to sort of uh, the Old Major representing Karl Marx, or at least sort of the ideals of communism or socialism, mm. uh, linking to Orwell's political past. Um, so the animals uprise, and there's this really sort of elongated animated sequence where the animals rebel. Uh, and that's a nice example of animation being used to vivify and actualise a particularly sort yeah. of cinematic, in quotes, moment in the book. Um, but, but for me, that's another act of rebellion against something like Disney. So I like the idea that they're, I don't know, they're, they're sort of encountering culture. So they want to live wild, ostensibly. They don't want to, they don't want to live 
in a particular kind of existence. So they remove what is it? Certain kinds of weapons, or they remove um, like pitchforks and constraints that have sort of marshaled them since they were born. And it seems to be a kind of they want to go. They want to go back. They don't want to be characters. They want to be. They, they want to go wild again. Um, and then they start entering into the. I think it's they enter into the house, the domestic space, and the narrator says something like where the tyrant used to live. Um, and it's here they sort of encounter interesting moments of, of kind of culture so I think the first thing one of the first things they encounter is a record player right. and then the second thing they encounter is a painting on the wall and they're sort of encountering art and culture and um, and so it's this weird rejection of Disneyness. they want to live wild but then the first thing they do is become humanised again because they encounter this sort of yeah, art, art culture and then the first thing they do is then destroy this so they destroy the record player and so there's some interesting stuff about about their identity as characters I thought that was a really strange way to uh, to sort of signify their rejection of a certain kind of narrative agency and then to acquire another form of narrative agency. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he says, desperately trying to unpack that a little. There's a, there's a in, in theories of the British fantastic, there's discussions of what they call the myth of Arcadia, which basically just means this sort of um, recurrent theme in a lot of British fantasy stories about returning to rural past pastoral mm. existence and the pastoral being representing something that's sort of more authentic or more British in quotation marks than the world that they live in now and the use of animals to do that and this goes right back to say uh, things like uh, Wind in the Willows or um, Wind in the Woods the, the, the Kenneth um, Graham. So Graham Kenneth Graham is Wind in the Willows but I can't remember uh, Wind in the uh, doesn't matter. Um, it'll come to me if later. If we edit this bit, you could just say it. As yeah. If when when you suddenly hear me in different acoustic climates assert who I was trying to talk about. Later, yeah, yeah. You know that we've cut a bit out. <laughs> sure. Um, but there's a, there's a you know there's a long tradition of this, and I think there's a certain element of that going on here, whereby uh, yeah, the animals, and I think it's in the in the original source as well. The animals want to return to this place before industrial industrialization is part of the problem. It's not just this farmer who's being nasty, it's, a drink, yeah. it's the mechanised nature of farming that is also part of the problem. That's quite a Tolkien-esque story, actually. Tolkien with his wo woods that fight back and uh, destroy, um, destroy industries surrounding him and things like that. Um, does it speak to, in terms of the context of this animation, though, does it speak to, I don't know, um, encroaching American commercialisation? But I guess there's that weird tension in the production history between... Um, the funders and the makers is there was there any tension surrounding that at all in the the tension between the funders and the right, so, so we've got the american backers and the british filmmakers who 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 with with certain socialist leanings uh you know the, the political climates of, of 1950s britain versus the right, yeah. of, well, of what, america got a but have created some what the the, the kind of the their sort of the cultural cold war and american government cia liked about Orwell was because it was anti-Stalin mm -hmm. uh, and kind of uh, and I was Orwell not liking the way that the Communist Party had gone uh, kind of so, but basically so it's anti-totalitarian anti-Starwell to a certain extent anti-Communist Party thing what they wanted to remove was the fact that he was against those but he was still a democratic yeah. socialist so that's the bit that they wanted to take away and just actually so use it it was a great text because it did speak to um kind of sort of audiences on the left as, as well as the, those who, who would have seen uh, um, kind of red baiting and things like that. People who would have been against communists, that, would, that was easy. But actually being able to sort of have that authority of, uh, of, of Orwell, sort of the uniqueness of his voice and that he could, to a certain extent, speak to, 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 to both sides. So he was extremely useful in that way, but there's a lot of the, the other parts of the text in terms of that he was down on also on capitalism and he's down on um, other ways that um, he had many other messages that they wanted to sort of remove. And so there was a, a, a lot of uh, toing and froing over the script, uh, a lot of instructions, a lot of changes, um, most famously the ending, but a lot of more sort of subtle changes throughout uh, in terms of not wanting to portray, it was fine to portray um, Farmer Jones as uh, as a bad man, mm -hmm. but that didn't necessarily mean that the other farmers were were were, were bad themselves. So they, and that the other farms were actually doing farm fine, nicely, and some farmers treat their their animals really well. <laughs> and they're kind of actually removing a lot of the kind of the, the sort of more pessimistic general spread of of Orwell's message and just centering it in terms of focusing 
on one very specific farm, one very and to them basically, Soviet Russia was the problem, and wanting mm. to focus. I mean, Orwell's book has quite a lot of different um, levels to it in terms of. Uh, sort of characters like Pilkington in the book, for example, is representative of, of Great Britain. Uh, that was something that was kind of removed out of, of the mm-hmm. text. And, and some characters have been removed for sort of narrative uh, flow and making, fitting it in, into um, originally 70 minutes, extended out to 72. Um, others were moved for, for political reasons or downplayed for political reasons. So there was a lot of toing and froing over. And, with probably John and Joy pulling their hair out because they would be given these instructions from the backers that they, they were never precisely told who they were. Um, so it had a huge impact on, on, on the flow of the film and the getting it finished. So there's certain passages in the film that you look at it and think, well, the animation is not great, but it's probably because they were told to cut something else out and, and change something and they had to just sort of throw in some animation at last minute so there are variations in the kind of the quality of animation in right. there um, there's a particular I mean one thing that always sticks out to me and I have no idea whether this is true or not but in terms of that Napoleon um, sequence you think of kind of no, sorry the old major sequence quite major start of the film there's a really poor panning shot over a sort of frozen group of characters um, which it feels like a placeholder and it makes me think that something was replaced at last minute but other bits at the end the bit with the kind of the posters of Napoleon at the end um, apparently that was a sort of last minute addition just just to make the message clearer so there was a number of these things going on all through the production that do differentiate it from um, maybe sort of commercial choices that were made or sort of narrative choices that there was a political pushback mm. in terms of what they could and couldn't do because at the end of the day they were getting paid to do it that's I, I really want to talk about snowball now if we don't mind because <laughs> I, think, I think that was the character that struck out to me as being not that different from the books but different enough to speak to a lot of the issues you just raised there and that snowball in the books at least, there's a significant chunk of the narrative given to the, the reign of Snowball. And Snowball, Snowball, if people are following the story, so Old Major um, enacts this revolution, Old Major dies, uh, the revolution takes place and very quickly the, the sort of um, figurehead of this movement becomes the pig Snowball. Um, and Snowball uh, holds all these sort of democratic um, rallies, they meet a, every, sort of every day or every week in the barn shed and it's a very sort of... Um, nice version of, of this farm functioning and in the book that's a significant chunk of this farm run by animals for the v- values of animalism and done well and done properly and to me that's what we you know and i'm sure i'm not the first to say this by any means but that is that is orwell's articulation of socialism working well or what socialism can be um within the film i suspect a large well you could forgive a lot of it just for a narrative economy because it has to get to Napoleon, but that snowball section is heavily tran- truncated to, to barely be more than a few scenes, right? And that, to me, is exactly what you're talking about in that the film sort of doesn't make space for this representation of a of a version of this farm working well, almost. Yeah, I think there were definitely, uh, from in, in Lee's book, I can think of a few, um, there was definitely pushback in terms of Joy Batchelor's representation of, of Snowball and not wanting to make him a heroic character. It was kind of, can you make him a bit more efficient? And he was kind of cut out because he was problematic to the centrality of that message. And part of that is narrative. And also it seems to have had a sort of a, um, a political dimension to it to a certain extent in terms of the message that wanted to be pushed forward. Um, so, but all these things are hard to... There's no kind of smoking gun in the archives of, of, no. of, kind of things like that. But there's kind of just sort of these hints of kind of, well... This would be a slightly better message, and the investors would like it to sort of go this way. And Snowball is one of that. And some things are kind of cut for now. So in the book, the windmill gets blown up twice. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, in the film, it gets blown up once because it, it is hard to go through yeah. that sequence again and yeah. cut it down. Um, and the sort of the role of that making of the of, of the windmill as sort of a, a parallel of the five-year plan, uh, I mean... In a way, that's the sort of the re-embracing of sort of capitalism and effort and working for for a cause which is supposedly your own, um, but at the end up ends up benefiting just the pigs more than, than the others, despite their efforts to go into it. And there's there's a number of things like that in there. Dreams, dreams. A vote for my man is a vote for the life beautiful. It's a lie. I'll promise you a four-day week. Wash! 
Perhaps a three-day week. Nonsense. All day week. Okay, sorry, listeners. I'm going to just very quickly interrupt. I just wanted to talk a little bit about films and television and what happens, say hypothetically, somebody who is listening to the podcast would love to contribute uh, and they have a particular moment from one of their favourite fantasy or animated television shows or films. What what could they do? Yeah, it's quite a good question, that. Because it's a great I, question. I Alex. suspect there's quite a lot of listeners out there that would like to take part in the conversations that feel a little bit intimidated, perhaps. They don't know where to start. Fantasy animation is such broad sort of topics. Where do I go with it? Um, so what we've done is we've created a new uh, blog format for people to take uh, part in, which is what we're just calling the sequence analysis. So what you can do is you can take um, a sequence of a couple of minutes, whatever it might be, from a particular fantasy show, Mm -hmm. film that you're interested in, uh, an animated television program or feature film, or just something that interests you. It might not even be kind of an obvious choice. We love love the obvious, but we also like the obscure. Mm -hmm. So if you're interested in doing a short kind of analysis of a particular moment from anything that you're interested in, uh, do get in touch. You don't have to be uh, an academic, a scholar. You can be uh, maybe a practitioner. You can be a fan if there's a particular... um, television program that you absolutely love or a film that you think no one's heard of but works really well um, do get in touch we'd love to hear from you what would you do as a sequence analysis Chris oh thanks for giving me an impossible question I would probably do something from I do Pixar related something kind of contemporary uh, or I might do like a really early um, kind of strange something kind of involves strange magic what about you yeah, I reckon I'd do something from like uh, an obscure that I'm really interested in in punk, in uh, comics from the 70s. Maybe like one of those sort of, there's a lot of odd underground fantasy films from then that I might write on. So all I would do is take a minute or two of the film that speaks to me that I find particularly interesting or exciting or anything like that and just try and put into words how it works or how, on, how it's functioning. If you'd like to know more about our sequence analysis, you can visit the website, uh, fantasy-animation.org, and you can also click through and have a look at some existing sequence analysis to see the kind of thing that we're looking for. You can also follow us on Twitter at FanAnimResearch, or you can search for us on Facebook with the Fantasy Animation Research Network. But for now, we'll get back to the show. So Snowball is a, a character who is articulating this, as you said, this vision of socialism that works. And in the film, that degree of harmony, and I think they say this, the sort of desire for harmony without inter, human interference is sort of, from memory, is, is part of a broader sequence where the characters are being educated and they're sort of learning things and they're being cultured. Mm-hmm. And then soon that is soon, or that is quickly superseded by the first call of traitor, I think. And that's that's when the first, when, when that sort of, um, utopian vision of socialism starts to unravel where we get a dream of a possible future and then we're soon into fractures and divisions and infighting and this yeah. idea um, that there will be we go from there will be a lamp on every in every stall and, yeah. and um, to suddenly traitor so is that, it, that, that, that that passage of the film is known to be longer in the book through much, that much character shorter. but in the film it's less than 10 minutes I think mm-hmm. maybe not even that yeah and, and, and the, in the book it's given a license to you could see how that would continue functioning if it weren't for something like Napoleon coming along it's given license to exist as a fully functioning uh, machine for want of a better word whilst yeah. in the film there's this sort of a doomed inevitability to even that minute. but there is even in that section this wonderfully like balletic moment where they're all working on the farm together and they dream and all this stuff. it's almost like a little uh, I've got written sort of very clumsily because again I, my frame of reference is Disney for all these things kind of Fantasia-esque yeah. musical sequence where they're working on the farm and that to me is, you know, almost, it's almost like you know again it's, it's difficult to read intention into this but the effect of it is that there is this in the animation little two minutes where you're given this vision of I was going to say you have dreams that you basically have it does dream. feel like a dream rather than a reality yeah. and it's and it's sort of like I guess now we call them cutaways or, or something but when um, Snow was describing this possible future that the, these things will happen these are the part you know basically laying out a, a, a certain kind of manifesto um, you get little I think there's still images actually still images of those promises yeah. But I think you're right that they're framed as only existing in the mind of these characters. They're never actually going to be fulfilled. I think that's right. I think you just get still images of, of what, what his promises would look like mm-hmm. within the context of the farm. But ultimately, those are, those are given sort of short shrift as we move into, okay, so the laws, the, the laws that are written on the wall are starting to get ever so slightly changed. One little note on the laws. I, 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 
what I think is interesting is the laws of the animal farm that are written on the wall or the side of a house, I think, or something like this, um, are sort of rules of rules of a fictional world. You know, these things we can expect. So they actually function quite nicely for spectators as a sort of this is what characters can and can't do. This is how they this is how they interact with humanity. This is how they are cultured or not cultured, um, and that really plays out throughout the whole film. Sometimes they talk and sometimes they squeal and sometimes they act like humans and sit at a dinner table and sometimes they're rolling around in mud and I quite like the way that the film doesn't even stick to its own rules which is perfect for a film that is about the kind of political corruption of a manifesto. So we should probably get onto the reign of Napoleon. Uh, I should also add that I didn't even, you know, I didn't read any of this political subjects into the film. I think this is, this is I'm discovering this all anew. So Napoleon comes yes. along, he spoils it all. Uh, he quickly introduces all the rules that I'm sure people would be familiar with. He uh, removes the de- democratic element to it. He um, gives uh, values, you know, he, he makes a good life for the pigs at the expense of the rest of the animals. He replaces all the rules on the thing with uh, rules like... Um, kind of quantifying. So it goes from no animal should drink alcohol yeah. to no animal should drink alcohol to excess. Yeah. Um, no animal shall sleep in a bed. No animal shall sleep in a bed with sheets. So it's this sort of modification of... of and then eventually, um, the classic line, uh, um, all animals are equal, except that some animals are more equal than others. And the pigs sort of take over and become the new kings or farmers of, 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 the, of, the, uh, of Animal Farm. Um, I mean, it's a well-worn moment. It's, it's most of the movie. I mean, we're, we're sort of skipping over it because I'm just conscious of time. Uh, do what? What do we have to say about about this and how it's dealt with? For me, with my fantasy hat on, it spoke to issues of allegory. Yep. For me, this film is more interested in the little details, the running of the farm, the the work schedules, the shots of farm of animals going to and from work, than it is necessarily interested in its broader, or at least its animation seems more interested in that than its than its sort of broader narrative. So there are questions as to how much it removes the allegory through its process of animation. As I say, there's, there's a lot of sort of work on this about fantasy allegories, fantasy against allegory. Is fantasy necessarily allegoric? Some people argue that because fantasy isn't reality, it's inherently allegoric. Other people argue because fantasy is trying to convince us of a faux reality, it is inherently unallegoric. I can't be bothered really to wade in an authoritative conclusion on that, but certainly there's a thorny history in that. Where do we see, for me, the role of allegory? In, in all of this, and does any of the animation style? What did you feel? I guess Chris, with your animation hat on, and then uh, I'll, that impo- I'll ask the impossible yeah, question yeah, yeah, to Chris. Yeah, good. Uh, giving our guest yeah, the answer um, is seven. The answer, yeah. <laughs> we all think seven. Yes. Uh, well, no. I'm just. Uh, we've talked a little bit, I think, in previous episodes about animation's role within ideas of metaphor and and its ability to use visual metaphors to create kind of puns and proverbs, to literalise on screen puns and proverbs. And and certainly there's lots of writing about uh, animation as being itself fundamentally metaphorical, but in its act of anthropomorphism, that it is ascribing human traits to certain kinds of characters. um, That is, anthropomorphism is an act of personification and personification is an act of metaphor or kind of a rhetorical device that allows us to think allegorically. I had a note about pigs as gluttonous and I just put link to spirited away because I feel like there's, you know, pigs are the go-to animal for gluttony and greed. Um, But I mean, I don't know. I think it's easier to read the allegory in the animated characters. It's strange that the film, I, I suppose one, if there, it might even be a criticism, it's, it's a thing that I've just thought of, is that it kind of doesn't really know what to do with human characters, and so it kind of marginalises them, and actually, when, it's focused, when, when there are animals on screen, the allegory seems to be kind of there and present, it's sort of the clear and present danger, whereas the, the, the human characters in the film, so Mr Jones, and then I think it's, uh, is it Mr Wimper, who's the, mm-hmm. the guy at the end who looks like the Monopoly man, um, which I don't think is a... I think that there's a certain image of certain kind of um, the capitalist hero. Anyway, um, so I don't know. There's there's something around the way we the way I read the sequences with just the animals into the way I read a scene at the pub with the human characters in. Uh, there's kind of something there about the way that the film uses the pigs and or I guess by extension all of the animals um, to talk about what Napoleon calls at one point the pig run enterprise. Um, he talks about uniting in the common cause, peace. Um, Plenty and pig rule. Uh, the, the film is at least trying to make divisions, I think, in the way that it tells the story between kind of us and them and inside and outside, this side of the gate, that side of the gate, um, whether you're the boss, whether you're the workers, whether you're cultured, whether you're savage, whether you're clothed or whether you're unclothed. And so there's, there's lots of 
divisions in the film that for me made the allegory particularly um, resonant but I don't think it was the human characters I was sort of thinking about their role they're sort of an off cut or a byproduct of this animal farm I, I felt like they didn't, really, the, they, they didn't really know what to do with the human characters where to put them and what, what function they had really I think that does go back to the sort of political direction that they were given um, and the sense that a lot of the the human characters were cut out. So Mrs. Jones, for example, right. is missing. Um, Have you met Miss Jones? Nope. <laughs> uh, and um, wanting to remove some of the sort of elements of the stories that involved other humans beyond, uh, even to the extent that in, in terms of the battle sequences, they wanted it as being um, farm hands rather than farmers coming to the assistance of, of, of Jones for the, the kind of second battle scene and not wanting to bring other human characters in. The other thing I just think with the animals is I think they had, as sort of storytellers using animation, they had this sort of struggle with keeping, wanting to use animals realistically to a certain extent, wanting to make them move realistically. And I mean, unless I'm wrong, it's only the pigs who actually speak. And that's the hard mm. bit that they had to, they had to carry the narrative. Mm. They couldn't just pantomime the whole thing. I didn't want to overuse the narration. And so I do think that they were the way that they wanted to use the animals is they wanted them to move realistically to bring a kind of a realism to the story to a certain extent. Yeah. Um, and the exception to that is the, the, the pigs, but then as the pigs are the exception, you can get away with that because they end up on on two feet and uh, and the way that, yeah. that they sort of talk and act the story. So, I, yeah, I, I think there's definitely something in. I think they were pushing for a certain amount of integrity in the way the animals move so, that were used. So let's just let's just riff on the pigs for a moment. Yeah. I think that's perhaps the nut the, the, the nitty gritty of all of this, isn't that actually I think there's a quote from uh, Walter Benjamin, a, a famous cultural theorist who writes about allegory and he says that allegory um, is to stories what a ruin is to a building. Um, so uh, allegory is the is the is the thing that sh the sh it shatters is the shattering of, of the narrative integrity so that you're required to look for um, a figurative reading to make it make sense rather than literal meaning if the literal meaning stands on its own grounds then there's no need for this allegorical interpretation right. um so it is the ruin that that shows us the building rather than um it being the building in and of itself and i think why i'm doing that is because i think there's something about the pigs in this in that because on some points the animals are, are quasi-realistic they are red they are that it's easy to see them as animals and yeah. actually kind of the point of this is that you're not supposed to see them as animals and the pigs are the one animal that has this liminal space between humanity and uh and animaldom um or yeah. bestiality um both in the story and in in the original story and in this and in this animated adaptation but the problem with that is that you've also got the humans in the story and there's a nice successful conclusion in the original book the original ending is of course uh the pigs invite the farmers over for dinner not other pigs there's this weird pig convention at the end isn't there where they invite all the other pigs that are apparently doing this on other farms or uh, teaching them how to do it. I was guessing some sort of allegory for like the Soviet bloc or something like that, or what one would assume, right? Yeah, yeah. kind of the spread of, of, of communism. I mean, in the book, from memory, it's, it's kind of the, the end is modelled on the, the 1943 Tehran conference with Stalin coming together with um, uh, uh, the American mm. president and the British prime minister and that kind of betrayal of, of kind of actually suddenly we're working on the same, on the same table and then there's a kind of card game. In the book... It seems the instructions they were given, despite um, John sort of, there's correspondence where him saying, actually, you know, all well, the ending's pretty good. And it mm. ties up the ending really well that they couldn't use that ending. Um, and so it ends up being restricted to just pigs. Um, and they take on the look of, of, of Jones, the farmer, rather than generic humans. And it's, it's making, again, it's kind of narrowing down the argument that this is the target, not a wider target. That's yeah, so, it's not, so it's not animals are pigs and pigs yeah. are animals. It's pigs are pigs, um, and sometimes they look like humans, but actually they're just really evil pigs. Like it's, it's sort of the it's sort the, of the the pigs have, have basically sort of morphed into what was the ancien regime, and, yeah. and basically it's just a replaced light to light with a different face. Um, yeah, and that seems to be the, the point that it's it's making. The other side to it then is that obviously what's added in is this kind of note of. A second revolution yes. of, the, of the animals mm. revolting against that, and a kind of somewhat indeterminate ending, but pretty much being b bad for the pigs. But what happens next? Who knows? Whereas at least Orwell's ending is a bit more is pessimistically mm. conclusive that everybody's 
buggered. Yeah, I've got written, I've got written in my notes. Ending uh, more xenophobic towards pigs, but added hope. Question mark. Yeah. Because um, uh, I think they, I think if I was a pig, and in many ways I am, uh, but if I was a pig, I'd find this film quite. You know, it, there's a there's a xenophobia or a speciesobia to, to yeah. its to its to its politics towards the end, particularly when it uses animation to sort of celebrate the gluttony and all these things. But there is that revolutionary hope added to it, which I guess isn't in the original source text. So. Um, so it's complicated. It's a nice creative solution to that, I guess, if you're battling with these. Well, I think the and the, obviously the role of animation in that final sort of scene in the film where the characters momentarily take on the role of multiple Joneses sitting at the table, and then they revert back to being pigs. And it's yeah, the kind of ability, I guess, of animation to. Because you mentioned earlier, just to say that animation is one of the, is it, it couldn't be told in or it couldn't be told in any other way other than an animation. So. Um, there's so much more more we could say about about the film, about pigs, about pig rule, about pig enterprises. Um, my last point is history is repeating as the animals overthrow the pigs. Where's Animal Farm Two? That's my question. <laughs> It'll be a direct Colon. DVD sequel. Yeah. Um, I know it won't be a direct DVD sequel because DVDs don't exist anymore, do they? But um, it would be it would be something. Yeah. Okay. So I think I think we're probably reaching the point of final two cents here. Um, yeah. I think I think for me I think the film. Um, I think the film is interestingly allegorical, despite all these changes and all these tensions and things being made. And I, and I, and I, and I will just sort of... I think there's an interesting point you're making about this couldn't have been told through live action. Mm. Well, well, it could have been told through live action, but it wouldn't have been, um, and it would have been a very different film. Um, so I think that speaks to some of the, the tensions surrounding um, 50s culture, 50s culture in Britain... Uh, financial sources in 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 mid fifties uh, mm. British cinema versus American cinema, and indeed the role of fantasy in all these things. Um, yeah. But because it would be, it could be told for action. But might, one might argue it would be silly. And but now all things, but it of course could be. You know, we should never um, assume that these things yeah. can't be done just because we wouldn't do it that way. It more speaks to why we wouldn't do it that way. And I think we wouldn't do it that way because of a combination of lots of things that we've articulated in the podcast. I guess my my, my final thought is this is this issue of allegory and whether. The, whether the film becomes an it is functioning as an allegory of an allegory so it's an allegory of how allegories are told within animation there seems to be a kind of a distance in the film that the film is telling us about how we might read it allegorically in a, so i wonder whether that's the sort of the issue with this this sort of the ruin and the, that there's something in that that the film is can be read allegorically but when i was watching it it was i felt like the film was allegorizing that process of 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 allegory within animation. I don't know what I mean by that. It's so about making an allegory. Yeah, an allegory. there's something like that because it's about making a community and it's about the overthrowing of that community and it's it seems explicit in the way that animals are being used because I think maybe that comes from the voiceover that the voiceover is sort of saying this is how it's being told. It goes back to your point about illustration that this very much feels like a story that's being told yeah. and told to us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Jez, I guess now we've pontificated theoretically about things, bring us back to the the reality of all these things. What what sort of is there left to say about this movie for listeners who might uh, want to check well, out? I suppose just uh, one thing on the, on the live action front is that I have a cutting here from the Manchester Daily Dispatch. Oh, I'm already excited. Classic archivist. Classic <laughs> archivist. And it does make me wonder in terms of actually the, the sort of press and PR around this film, how much of it was supported by maybe um, part of this kind of cultural cobalt funding because there were a few instances of people in animal suits been. Uh, a lot in Manchester, but also I suppose it has less wing. But anyway, they ran a competition for um, who would, who which established actors would play the different characters, uh, and they came. Uh, the good. winners were Peter Ustinov as Napoleon, <laughs> right? Spencer Tracy as Boxer, uh, Michael Redgrave as Snowball, Alec Guinness as, <laughs> as Benjamin, and James Mason as Farmer Jones. Wow! Well, I don't know if you could think of any uh, kind of. I could kind of th- I could see Michael Shannon being Napoleon. Uh, in <laughs> I don't know if you can come up with uh, any of your own. Well, I think you've just set up our, our discussion thread for the week. Um, yeah, uh, listeners, please get in touch. We'd like uh, recast Animal Farm yeah. for, for 2018 <laughs> for us. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's Brilliant. great. That's really really great. Thanks for sharing that. All right, um, Jez, uh, where can uh, this, where can listeners find you if they want to uh, read about more innovations on animation at the BFI? Uh, well, that's a good question. Ah, uh, you get an impossible question now. Um, well, no, well, you can f- I find me on Twitter um, at Stu G's for some reason, S T E W J W E Z. 
Uh, I do have a, uh, a page on the BFI website. Uh, good luck finding it. Um, <laughs> there's a few articles on there, including something about... Um, there's one article on there about British animated features and how rare they are, uh, which gives a bit more of the background in terms of making those. Otherwise, I crop up uh, there and about. Um, have Check out the... Uh, th- we have still have a few... Oh, no, we don't when this comes out. I was going to say animation 2018 programming at... Uh, BFI South Bank has gone. Uh, it was great, wasn't it? How was it? Oh, yeah, it was God. Yeah. What a year that was. December was the particular highlight. Oh, right now. Amazing. <laughs> it was a terrific festival, though, and, and Chris and I went to a few events there, so um, uh, thank you for putting on that. Do you have plans to do anything in 2019 or uh, that we listeners could check out, or uh, you're retreating back to the archive now? They, uh, I mean, if you have also I should plug, um, the uh, if you haven't looked at it, um, the Animated Britain collection on, on BFI Player, um, I mean, there's a good few hundred animated films uh, on there. Um, and what we're looking at now is ways to sort of add some of the context around and linking up those collections and, and hopefully a book that um, starts to sort of get down some of these histories and tie them together. And that's that's definitely enough to be going on with. Chris. Uh... Yes. I was going to ask you if you need that. I don't know why you need to plug anything. You do this every week with me. I do. I've gone do Lally. It's, I do. It's past, well, I mean, um, to, I'll, you know, in terms of the final word, uh, we obviously you can follow us on Twitter at FanAnimResearch, or you can visit the website, fancy-animation.org. Um, Alex, you're probably going to plug the same thing. So all I, all I will say is thank you, Jez, very much for joining us to talk about Animal Farm. Pleasure. Um, thank you, Alex, for also coming to talk to us about Animal Farm. Um, and thanks, Chris, for being my uh, Napoleon to my snowball. Uh, you are welcome. As always. Um, we'll yeah, can we take on. these costumes off now? <laughs> <laughs> it's getting a bit hot. Yeah, it's getting a bit hot now, isn't it? We've had to take them off. All right, well, thanks very much uh, for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. <laughs>